life forms. You tiny little life forms. You precious little life forms. Where are you? Today, on The Essential Soundtracks, we look into the film Star Trek Generations as Eric Woods, Rob Daniels, and I continue our path through Star Trek films and their scores. Today, you'll hear us discuss the film at some length, the making of the film, and a detailed discussion about Dennis McCarthy's underrated score. So sit back and relax. As the essential soundtracks on Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast begins now. Welcome to another episode of The Essential Soundtracks. I am your host, Randy Andrews. It's great to have you on board. Today, we are discussing the 1994 film Star Trek Generations with original music by Dennis McCarthy. Joining me today is Eric Woods. And making his second appearance on The Essential Soundtracks is Rob Daniels, the host of Obscure Scores here on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast and the host of his own terrestrial radio soundtrack program, Visions in Sound, which can be heard on 98.5 CKWR in Kitchener, Ontario. Welcome, Rob. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Star Trek Generations is the seventh film in the Star Trek film series and was released November 18, 1994. Malcolm McDowell joined cast members from the 1960s television show Star Trek and the 1987 sequel series The Next Generation. In the film, Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise D joins forces with Captain James T. Kirk to stop the villain Tolian Soren from destroying a planetary system in his attempt to return to an extra-dimensional realm known as the Nexus. Instead of going with the proven feature film director, the producers chose David Carson. The British director had no feature film experience, but had directed several episodes of Star Trek, including the popular Next Generation episode, Yesterday's Enterprise, and the Deep Space Nine pilot, Emissary. The film received mixed reviews but audiences made the film the highest grossing film during its first weekend, and the film stayed in the top 10 for four weeks. It was a financial success, bringing in 75 million domestically and just under 120 million internationally. Amazing. So Ron, let's start with you. 
When was the first time that you saw Star Trek Generations? Well, I saw Generations actually in the theater and uh, back in 94. And I just remember it being the movie to go to. Um, I was just kind of finished finished college. My Some of my college friends were still around. And so we just packed, packed into the car and went off to see the latest Star Trek, uh, Star Trek movie. And uh, I was really happy, you know, to kind of see them back after the, ni- the 1991 uh, Undiscovered Country. So it was really nice to, to get back with a kind of this melding of generations, we'll say. And uh, I, I remember enjoying the film immensely and was surprised to find that Dennis McCarthy was was the uh, composer on this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that is actually really surprising because I think it's only his his only film credit, isn't it? Yeah, he he hasn't done very many films. I know that much. And when, like I said, seeing his name in the credits was like, wow, okay, you know, they didn't bring they didn't keep with uh, Cliff Eidelman and they didn't they didn't bring on Jerry at that point. So, yeah, it was kind of yeah, that is awesome. Eric, what about you? When was the first time you saw Star Trek Generations? I saw Star Trek Generations on on home video, um, but I do remember the film being somewhat of a big thing. I was in in high school, and I think after its first week, the spoilers were already out that uh, that Captain Kirk dies, <laughs> and and so I heard that they're like, oh my god, you know. Kirk dies. I'm like, well, that's it. The The whole movie has been ruined for me. And I mean, to be honest, when I saw the trailers for the film, I was actually disappointed that the old cast was coming back because I'm like, this is a next generation film. And I can understand the passing of the torch thing and even have, I think, that line in the trailer. But um, I always wanted it to be just kind of like this standalone next generation movie without having to reference anything in the past. But having it, having seen it multiple times since it came out, I actually don't mind it now. Um, it 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 works in in some ways. I mean, the film isn't perfect. I think about two thirds of it is great, and then the ending just kind of uh, lets things down for me. But um, I think it just took too long to get to the next generation cast. Um, I also was really really upset that the Enterprise really didn't get its time to shine in the movie. Like for all the other films, the six films leading up to this, you know, the, the old Enterprise always got these great hero shots and we never got the hero shot of the next generation um, Enterprise in this movie. And I even think that the first shot is from, from the back of the ship. Um, but Besides that, yeah, I saw it on on video. I I enjoyed it at the time. Um, I thought it was an exciting film. Um, I don't think it was better than the Star Trek television, uh, Star Trek Next Generation finale, All Good Things, which I think if they had made that into the feature film, I think that would have been the best way to introduce the Next Generation crew to uh, the world of, uh, you know, on the silver screen rather than the small screen. But... um, but I, I really, though, took notice of Dennis, Dennis McCarthy's score. And I thought it was, it just had this kinetic energy to it that some of the other scores didn't have. Like, just absolute, pure adrenaline. 
in some of the action cues, these almost kind of um, militaristic style cues, lots of drum rhythms and and heavy orchestral um, action material, but it also had a sense of uh, heart. There was a lot of emotion. And again, coming from Dennis McCarthy, who was uh, one of the the, the mainstays on Star Trek Next Generation as, as the composer for the series, I thought his transition from that kind of dull wallpaper sounding score that composers were told to write right after the, I think it was the fourth, third season into the fourth season. They wanted less melody. They didn't want anything to stand out. They just kind of wanted to support whatever was on screen. I think once we went to the motion picture, Dennis McCarthy was really allowed to to, to let it out. So I, I really enjoyed the score. I do think it's underrated. And the film, um, again, I think that about two-thirds of it is really, really um, dynamite, where there's some iffy stuff that I'm not too keen on. I think the film just dies in its last third. It feels more like the television show than it does a feature film. But, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, 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 I enjoy it. Um, it's not one of the best Star Trek films, but I do think the score is is one of the better ones. It's in the upper echelon of, of Star Trek film scores for me. Now, I, I'm just going to chime in here for a second on a couple of things. Um, when I, uh, I had actually, you talk about spoilers, Eric, and uh, I had actually found a copy of the script online. I don't, I don't even remember where I found it, and it was this downloadable text file or something like that. So I knew what was going to happen long before a lot of people no did. No way. Really? And yeah, I, I couldn't, I, 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 I couldn't believe it. And the, there are some other things that are, we're going to be talking about a little bit later on that, that were like, I was like, this wasn't in the film. This wasn't in the film. So yeah, there was, there was that kind of thing, but yeah, the, the bringing of McCarthy and you can definitely see with after, after like best of both worlds, and and with Ron Jones and that sort of thing, you saw this as as you put it, Eric. I think you called it a wallpaper sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very wallpaperish music after that. But hearing Dennis McCarthy come out of his 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 uh, his television shell and into this into the this wonderful uh, score for for generations, uh, it's it's really cool to hear. Something else recently, I, I actually have been going through the various Star Star Trek movies. And I got to this one, and when I, I I'd watched it a, a number of years ago, but when watching it again recently, there were some things, and and I won't I won't discuss them here just yet, but we'll get to them. But there were some things in this that were a little bit more poignant to me now that I'm you know now that I'm in my fifties, and I was thinking, well, okay, why well, didn't I didn't see I didn't see or hear this the first time. Now that I'm now that I'm seeing it through older eyes. There's definitely a, a, a diff that the, the movie had changed for me a little bit. Agreed. So that yeah, yep. It has a different definite change even for when the last time I I watched it. Um, when I first saw it, uh, it was just in this tiny little theater in my hometown, and I thought it would be a full house because me and my buddy we were just standing outside the theater waiting to get in and the theater was barely full like at all like there was only maybe maybe close to 10 people there and I mean it was a tiny theater but it had good sound I enjoyed the movie movie immensely 
and I loved the blending of the original crew and the new crew. And I mean, I was, uh, I was a definite fan of Next Generation by far. Like Next Generation was my Star Trek, and um, but it was it was an excellent Star Trek movie, and it was the third Star Trek movie I had seen in theaters. Uh, so I had seen Star Trek Five, Star Trek Six, and then Generations so far, and um, it was a really I really enjoyed it. Like it just it really. Um, the score was really good. Dennis McCarthy's, like Eric had mentioned, you know, about the action cues, it really stood out to me. Um, there was a few interesting things about this movie that really, um, was very unique, and it changed the way they did, even like Star Trek, the series, they changed things from Roddenberry's death. Yeah. And uh, we're going to dive a little bit deep, deeper into this. And I thought this was really interesting that it was the first Star Trek film to be produced and filmed after Gene Roddenberry died. And the creative team began using story ideas and concepts which Roddenberry was originally opposed to. And one of those ideas was having the original Star Trek team and the Next Generation team join together, such as Kirk and Picard joining forces. What do you guys think? That had been the dream of fans, like, since um, the, at least the third season of Next Gen. People were saying, when are we going to see Kirk? We saw McCoy in the in, in, uh, an encounter at Farpoint, you know, we're, uh, eventually, we ended up seeing other other characters, Spock, and that. But when are we going to see Kirk? When is Kirk is Kirk still alive? What was that all about? They made references to him in the series a few times, but never anything specific. So this was a huge. This was an event. Uh, I remember seeing the trailers for this and going, "Yeah, this is. We've got to see this." And you know, to see Kirk and Picard on the screen, uh, on the big screen. Yeah, this was. This was the dream of fans all over the place. And this was the bringing together of Kirk and Picard. And it, it was, I'll leave my opinion as to how I feel about that until later on until we get to that. But yeah, that's, uh, I, I, I was, I was. Well, who are you for, Kirk or Picard? Well, okay, I am, I was, I was raised on Kirk. I am, I am not, I'm not old enough to have been alive during the original series, but the original series is what I, um, what I, what I was raised on. So I did see uh, Star Trek two through Nemesis, and well, even right up to the more J.J. Abrams and 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 that thing in the theater. So I have seen every Star Trek film save for uh, the motion picture uh, in the theaters. So, but yeah. So I, if you want me to to, to pick somebody, <laughs> that's very hard. Um, yeah. Because they both have, um, given now, I would lean more towards Picard, whereas probably back then I was maybe leaning more towards Kirk and that sort of thing. It's changed, and I will explain those those changes as we as we get into this. 
Yeah, it's interesting that um, it's interesting to hear that point of view because I come at it at a very, very different point of view. Um, <laughs> because I'm not a, I will not say I'm not. I'm a Trekkie, trucker, whatever you call super fans of, of, of Star Trek. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't super, really like matter. Super, like super, super. Don't just don't tell them to get a life. And, That's and all. you know, and I and I will not because I understand the fandom and I get it. But I came into Star Trek with Star Trek: The Next Generation. I was never a mm-hmm. fan of the original series. I tried watching it as a kid, and it just didn't do anything for me. Not that I didn't like the characters, because I fell in love with the characters in their movies. And this goes back to the point that I made earlier on where I don't mind the the original series crew. I actually, let's say I love them, but I think that they had their, their chance already. They made six films in, in Star Trek, The Undiscovered Country, ended their story, I think, perfectly. So I felt like that this was, you know, the original series characters kind of holding the hand of the next generation cast and kind of slowly guiding them into the to the movie world, which I don't think they needed. And that's kind of where I was standing where I'm again, I just wanted to see a pure next generation film. And eventually we got it with the superb uh, first contact. And but still, I think I got enough of the next generation cast in this um, that it it was worthwhile. Again, I needed more of the um, of the Enterprise um, because I really do love that ship. I I love the D so much. Um, With Roddenberry's passing, I think that yeah, I mean, cheers to Gene Roddenberry for bringing Star Trek to us, but he was holding writers back. The first couple of seasons of, of Next Generation are, are actually really painful. Are kind of rough. So yeah. the fact that he was <laughs> he was gone and well, it had its stand. It did have a couple episodes. of standalone episodes. I will say that. But then now you're able to explore more, and again, you're able to do serialized um, episodes of Deep Space Nine, and you can explore different themes. Again, that's what Gene Roddenberry was definitely opposed to, and you can do different things. There was a there was there was freedom, and I'm not saying that all the results were great. Because we get into stuff like Insurrection and Nemesis, which I think had some okay ideas, just the execution wasn't there. But you could, let's say, mix the casts. And again, I, I will say this. The opening sequence of this film is thrilling. It is absolutely thrilling. And and it takes up, what, about half an hour of the movie. But I think Shatner's always great as Kirk. It's great to see him um, kind of on the, on the sideline there and not being able to do anything um, when we see the Nexus. When he gives that little that little no, there's one suggestion the captain makes and he's like, no, 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 don't do that. And he's just like, he wants to get into the game. He wants to start, you know, dictating and, 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 and commanding the crew and he just can't because it's not his ship anymore. So I thought that battle between, you know, the Captain Kirk and the Admiral Kirk was really, really an interesting dynamic and all that came out within a half an hour, just a half an hour of screen time. But I think that again, my reservations towards the two crews coming together, I think we did get a a fantastic uh, sequence uh, in the opening of the film, which um, I've grown to appreciate the more I I see this film. So with David Carson, before seeing this movie, I'd never heard of him. Have you guys? I knew I knew of Yesterday's Enterprise, yeah. which is probably okay. one of the best episodes of of the of the series. I would say. I agree. Fight me on that one. Oh no, it, it, it well, definitely, it's, it's one it's, of the top ten for sure. <laughs> it's one of the top ten. Yeah. And and so for me to see him jump over to feature films, 
there were moments when I felt maybe he was a little bit out of his depth. Why? And then for the most part, it was it was solid. Uh, it was it it was as as Eric was saying, the, you know, about eighty percent of the movie is pretty good. It's that other twenty percent where they kind of dropped the ball, and it and it showed its television um, face, and it showed that that Carson was in fact a television director. One of the things that bothered me right off the beginning. And I don't know if 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 it bothered you guys. The lighting in the captain's room mm-hmm. with the yeah. with the dark and the the contrasts between that, I was like, wait a second, this doesn't <laughs> this doesn't feel like a television set. I mean, I know it was a movie <laughs> set, but it felt weird to watch that. And it, it, it at points it was like it took me out of it took me out of the film to. Cause, cause it it should have had a little bit more lighting. Oh, it's as if they yeah, turned the lights was, off the entire ship. Something, yeah, there was something off about it, and it and it it kind of it kind of bothered me. Um, not the my most recent viewing, because I went, okay, probably what it is is they're close to a sun. They don't want to oversaturate the room, mm. and and that sort of thing. I just thought I I thought okay, it was a, it was a lighting choice, mm. not my choice for lighting. But it in it it still worked. So one of the questions I have is, you know, we'll discuss it here. Uh, the uniforms, the uniforms I felt were all over the place. Yeah, I mean I know we got for that. some you know really interesting, <laughs> interesting uh, comparisons and didn't I mean they had Jonathan Frakes. Yeah. They had him wear a Deep Space Nine uniform, and uh, he just didn't fit it because he's too tall. Yeah, he always had to big. roll up his sleeves. You notice his sleeves are always rolled up because it's too too small I, for him. I saw that man in person. Yeah, he is not small. Yeah. <laughs> but it was it was a bizarre thing, and I'm sure people were wondering what in the world was happening, and and it was such a strange reason why, Rob. To, to put on my geek hat for a moment, <laughs> there is the, there 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 is an in-universe explanation, and that was the fact that they were that they were in transition between uniforms, between the original uniforms and the what would now would, would then become known as kind of the Deep Space Nine uh, uniforms. So I kind of bought it, um, but you're right. Now the, watching it now, I'm like. What was the deal with the uniforms? Now, from what I've heard, that there was there actually was a uniform design mm-hmm. that was that, and you see it on, I believe it's the action figures that the came out at that yep. time. Yeah, the Playmates toys or whatever they were. So you do see that, but for reasons that I'm was never quite privy to, they never went with those uniforms, and I think those uniforms would have been a bit. Better to than to try and fit everybody into Deep Space Nine in their uniforms. Yeah. I'm I'm glad they changed the uniforms for for fi- for First Contact. Do you so, like yeah. the gray ones? Do you like those? I like them. You know, I think they're cool. All right. I think that, I think that, they're really good. Yeah, they look really uh, comfortable. Uh, there's that. Uh, yeah, I, I just I just like. I mean. There's no, there's no denying that the 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 uniforms from Star Trek II are, in my opinion, yes. the, the the Starfleet uniforms that are the, I, I, debatably I would say are the best. But mm-hmm. um, 
looking at the transition over from um, those those skin tight uniforms that they were wearing in the first and second seasons of Next Gen to the definitely more comfortable uniforms that they were wearing much later on in like uh, generations as the first and first contact. Well, even with um, there was there was a few episodes I think in season five of Next Generation where Picard was wearing like that jumper uniform. Yeah, he had that. that you know? he had, like he, he had, had that, that jacket. Yeah, yeah, the gray uniform, and then he had the kind of red jacket with the with the black shoulders. Yeah, that was that was that was pretty cool. I, I just think that I just think that you know if, if Rick Berman puts the you know the Knicks on on those new uniforms, then I mean they should have just stayed with what they already had. And I know they were doing the transition into Deep Space Nine, but I mean you could still get away with it without confusing the audience because they were distracting. It was like why is that person wearing the black one? Why is that person not? And then like halfway through the film. Jordy's uniform changes. I think even the same thing with um, with Data. Um, it's just so it's so bizarre. Um, and it was um, Avery Brooks's uniform that uh, Frakes was wearing, and it didn't fit. So yeah, as I said, you look at Frakes, and his sleeves are rolled up the whole time because <laughs> they didn't yep. fit. But yeah, it was it was that was a bit distracting because when I saw it for the first time, that's all I was thinking about. I'm like, why why is this happening? Why is this transition happening? Now it's such a it was so weird um, that it almost took me it almost took me out of the movie because I'm paying attention to that little detail that you really shouldn't be paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Now another interesting thing about the movie, I just want to cover a few points on this because um, we really want to get into the score. Uh, one of the things that just kind of frustrated me about the film itself was. When Soren captures Jordy, and then he's like, then he makes this comment that says, I think we need to return uh, Mr. LaForge's sight back. And then he's like, oh, his heart just wasn't in it. In it. And it's like, what's he talking about? <laughs> and then the only way you know what he's talking about is if you read the book yeah. or if you have... Uh, unaltered version of the screenplay rob <laughs> yes well that was i and again I, I i hold to the fact that i have no idea where it came from or i don't remember where it came from but there is a scene specifically in the the in the script that um soren puts uh soren had been using had been utilizing borg technology and so the the the, the probe was being was set in Jordy's heart, and every time he would turn it on, it would it would affect uh, it would affect Jordy in in, in a, not a very pleasant way. So um, when he when he makes without that context, that told that whole line doesn't make any sense. No, nope. hot just wasn't in it, and it's like what? what? Yeah, until <laughs> until he, and until you get that behind the scenes, and I yeah. think I'm not certain on this. They have restored. At least there is a a a um uh an additional scene on a on like maybe the Blu-ray release of of, of generations that yeah. that shows that scene. It's not a it's not a very good scene. It was it's like a third, fourth, fifth generation source, but um 
but yeah, so it, it does show that scene and it does give you a bit more um, context to that whole line, which did, again, like I said, didn't make sense at the time. Though I was sitting in the theater going, oh yeah, okay, that's what he means. <laughs> I, because I'd read, I'd read the script a few months earlier, but no one else was like, his heart just yeah. wasn't in it? What, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, I know. Yeah. Because yeah, I read the book yeah. and I was, I understood what he was talking about. Mm. But everybody else were like, huh? Yeah. So um, another thing is Kirk's death. Yeah. So in the original ending, Kirk dies when Soren shoots him in the back. And Soren dies when Picard shoots him with his own disruptor. And it's like, in all honesty, that is so outside Picard's character. Yep. Like the original version. Because it's just, that isn't Picard. That's not who Picard is. No. So, um, and the novelization told the story differently. Right. Um, any thoughts, guys? Well, for me, uh, Kirk's, seeing Kirk fall and I mean spoilers for a uh, yeah. however however low old movie this is. ninety four. Um, we can see yeah, we're good. <laughs> ninety four. So the thing is is that Kirk with Kirk's death as he falls down this bridge and then uh or falls on this piece of bridge. I will say this. I watched the film with the one of the director's commentaries on. And actually the, it was it was the two writers that were talking about um, they were praising Shatner through the entire movie. Oh, he knows his character so well, and he does this, and he does that, and he and he does this. But they get to the point to, to the point where his last line is, "Oh my," and that was a that was an ad libbed line. Suddenly, the writers turn on him and say, "But that we didn't like that." Really? <laughs> and it was like, "What, guys?" He that was that was Kirk seeing the hit a, a final frontier he's never seen before. Right. So what else would he say? But oh my, I think Shatner, say what you will about him, got the finality of Kirk. Um, as to the as to it was fun and all of that, I thought that was a little clunky. But but getting to that point and once he once he finally dies the oh my was i thought was a perfect perfect way and and i had i, I ex tried to explain this to somebody who was it was a trek fan like, that's not the way kirk should have died and i said but he's going he's seeing a final frontier he hasn't seen before and this is this is and and and, and they were like no that's not how kirk should have died and i so i just kind of threw up my hands and said okay that's fine i'll leave you alone for that <laughs> one I like I liked the way it was I liked the way it was ended. Now, if you again putting on my my geek hat for a second, there is a continuation of that story in Return. novels. Yes, with with like a whole set of novels that Shatner wrote. I think there was which like is a why and a, yeah, it was a, there was a, 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 a there was a huge amount of them. I think there were, yeah, you're right. I think there was like a trilogy or at least at least at least three or four that kind of it was a. Uh, a Borg Romulan plot whole thing <laughs> plot and that kind of thing yeah so I, do, I don't well that sounds familiar yeah it does mm, season two well, season <laughs> one of Picard has that well, kind of season three too 
Yes. Oh, there's that. I mean, there are a couple of, and again, for those that haven't seen season three of Picard, I won't ruin it for you, but there are a few little Easter eggs to come a couple of the episodes in Picard where you're like, okay, this is what happened. I see now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So much, so much revolves around that. And it's really a kind of tragic, but yet also very poignant uh, for how Kirk died. Cause Kirk, Honestly, he wanted to die alone. Yes. He didn't he didn't want anyone around him. And he did pretty much essentially die alone with only Picard looking on. So Yeah, and it doesn't change the history either, right? Only only Picard knows how he actually died. Um, you know, so he still gets his kind of uh, you know, hero's death and the story behind it, but um it's unfortunate that this that all had to be reshot because yes. man is it a clunky clunky scene i mean just uh-huh. three old men fighting down on a bridge <laughs> is the we it's so uh, it's not good um no. but i think you're you're right rob where kirk saves it um with everything that uh, i mean just the way he even acts in that scene and you're right the oh my yeah. line um i always felt that that went against the convention of a death scene where yeah. mm-hmm. someone says something poignant and then they you know last breath and and die he says something rather cryptic and then dies and so i found that to be much more natural and fitting and you're right the you know him going off into a new frontier is the perfect way of, of stating that. So, and of course, just getting another great moment with William, William Shatner, who I, again, um, plays Kirk just so perfectly. There's just, I love watching him as, as Kirk. And so as for the Kirk's death, um, yeah, uh, I, it was necessary. Um, but I'm, I'm glad we got to see it in kind of two different ways. And one is the way that I guess the the rest of the Federation knows the story as, and the other one is more of a a personal um, death, the way that Kirk wanted to go out. And it's interesting that Picard's the only one to uh, uh, to witness it. So yeah. So I just wanted to to, to throw this in. Uh, there's something I've seen recently. It's like a two minute um, clip that this one Toyo or something came up. Oh with, yes. And. And you see, you see a Vulcan character. I'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. On on um, Viridian Three, that's and pretty recent too, wasn't it? Uh, it was. Yeah, it's like within the last couple of weeks. It was. Yep. And you see him looking at at the the com badge that's on the on the 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 Cairn of Rocks, and that sort of thing. And then he turns around, and it turns out that well, I'm not. Probably people have seen it. It's Spock. It's Spock. And it's a really good rendition of Spock. Mm-hmm. And so this is coming out of this um, Roddenberry archive mm-hmm, that they're talking mm-hmm, about, mm-hmm. where um, you, we're going to see a lot more, I think, a lot more of these kind of little short things to kind of play with, um, maybe not necessarily the history, but keep it alive. I mean, you're able, you, on certain, I think a certain website, you can tour each one of the enterprises and and that's the full enterprise not just the bridge not just this little sections the whole ship so yeah so so keep an eye out for that i'm trying to remember what it's called 
but yeah, just just type in uh, Generations Spock, you'll find it. And it's oh yeah, yeah. it's everywhere. It's a great little it's, it's everywhere. Yeah, it's yeah. so well yeah. done. I think the next topic that we talk about regarding the destruction of the Enterprise, um, that also has a lot of relevance to like right now, because yeah. if we had recorded this say two months ago we wouldn't have had some of the insight that we do now mm-hmm. from season three of Picard. So I have to say, we are going to spoil this. Oh, yeah. Because... Okay. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. We're talking about Picard, for sure. Picard is definitely tied to the destruction of the Enterprise for generations. And it really, like it shows that it's canon like it's not going to be like redacted or Mm -hmm. oh time travel fix this or anything no the enterprise saucer section landed on viridian 3 and it like slid across the ground you know like smashed to bits you know but i mean it's still in one piece sort of yeah okay so let's let's talk about pre picard season three I have I have very strong feelings about the destruction of the Enterprise. I want to know from you, Randy, you, Rob. I'll say my thoughts as well. But like pre Picard season three, what's your reaction to the producers destroying the Enterprise D in this film? I think it was very frustrating because I mean, the original Enterprise, as Eric and I know that the original Enterprise was a character onto itself. And yes, we get seven seasons of the Enterprise dealing with different threats, but we don't see it, you know, like taking severe damage or anything. Right. But um, having the ship destroyed, eh, that's a little too much, especially for how much that ship can take. Yeah, well, the the fact that it was the the Duras sisters that brought it right, down right. was like yeah, hey, sisters um, Duras. Yeah, no, for me it didn't it didn't bother me as much because well, Picard says it at the end. This is not the last. This is not we're we're not running out of letters anytime soon. <laughs> no, um, not yet anyway. But uh, yeah, so uh, it, for me it was again you pass the torch. You're going to want, according to the producers, from what I've heard, that the Enterprise filming model was not movie mm-hmm. um, satisfactory, I guess is maybe the yeah. word for it. I don't yeah, know. The, the details so weren't was, there for, yeah. for film. So, yeah. so that's why you get the, then all of a sudden the destruction of the D and then the introduction of the E in, in, in first contact. To me, that was to me. I kind of, I kind of said, I kind of res- resigned myself to that. That yeah, it was a television model, so it's going to look like a television model, regardless of what you do to it. And I mean, there wasn't the CGI that was that was that's prevalent now, and they would be and would have been able to to kind of give it that give it that filmic look, and still keep it, uh, which which showed up in Picard. It had that. It 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 very easily could have gone on a on a on a on a large screen and still wouldn't have lost anything whereas at that at that time there the technology just wasn't there to 
make it look like it belonged on the big screen. That was just my just my feeling. And I'm not I'm sad, yes, to 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 see it go, but I'm also happy that they went on to uh, to Enterprise E and beyond, we'll say. And G. Yeah. And G, yes. F and G, yes. I've got, there's many points here as to why, like my anger kind of goes across a couple of films. And again, Next Generation is the series that I grew up with. And I and I love the ship. Um, although many people called it, what was it, the... It was it was it the, was it the fat ship or the wide ship or something like well, that. They, they that's hated the, oh, it. <laughs> there's a re- there's a reference in Picard. Oh, that's the fat one. Yeah, I mean it was a bit it was a bit bulgy, but still I loved the look of it. I loved the galaxy class starship. I I loved them, and I think I think that's the big thing about its destruction, is that I loved the ship. I loved the look of the ship, and again we all fell in love with that ship. So when when the Enterprise was destroyed in um, Star Trek Three, we got a ship that looked like that old ship at the end of that film and into Star Trek, um, sorry, into Star Trek Four, and then going on. I mean, we got a got a really nice looking Enterprise that looked like the original Enterprise, which is where I think my major disappointment is the fact that the Enterprise E looks like this flat pancake and it it doesn't feel like the enterprise it looks more like a a warship than an explorer it's so dark it it that you can't really see its details i i have no emotional connection to that look of ship and so that's kind of where even with jerry goldsmith's beautiful enterprise theme playing over top of its um introduction in 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 first contact i'm like I don't feel a thing, which is why I was so disappointed in Generations, not just of the destruction of the Enterprise, but we just never got that beauty shot like we eventually did when we saw the Enterprise D return in Picard Season 3. It was so perfect. And so I think that's where I was so disappointed to only see the Enterprise D on the big screen for half of film. And then I had to see that ugly new ship for for the rest of them, which I, I didn't like. And I love that joke that they mentioned that it was destroyed. Worf did something to it in Picard. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's not my fault. Yeah. And that was that a great was line. I don't really need to know what happened to it. I'm just glad it's gone. So I just think that, you know, these ships and Randy, we've re- mentioned this many times, whether we're talking Star Wars, we're talking Star Trek, these ships are characters and you've got to treat them like that. You and and I don't mind that the the ship crashed, that you know the, the the saucer section is the thing that survived, but they could have saved it, brought it back, and refit it, and maybe kind of given it a bit of an update for first contact and insurrection and um and and nemesis because again I felt absolutely nothing for for the new ship. So I guess that's kind of why I was I was angry with it. I will say this though. The effects of the destruction of the Enterprise are absolutely thrilling. The fact that that's all practical is unbelievable. But I mean, I will say this, I will say this though, the the Enterprise B sequence in this movie, the scope of that sequence with all of those special effects, ILM 
absolutely knocked it out of the park. The whole mm-hmm. um, sequence agree. with the Nets, Nexus, just the sheer size, that ship looked absolutely enormous. The way they shot it, I don't know how they did it, but that was a beautiful model. That's a beautiful sequence. Everything looks absolutely incredible. The special effects are unbelievable in this film, with the exception of that reused um uh, explosion of the bird of prey but um but uh but yeah so again the destruction of the enterprise very very sad for me as a fan of next generation and a fan of that ship but special effects wise holy cow this movie is unreal in the special effects department yeah it did a really good job yeah. so Ooh. so now but hold on but now now that we've seen Picard season three i'm okay with all of this <laughs> <laughs> it's back, baby, and it's safe and sound in the museum, and I'm okay yep. with it because, man, those yep. last two episodes of Picard, oh baby, that was fun. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. So now I think we can get into the soundtrack discussion. The original soundtrack album was released at the time of the film's release on GNP Crescendo Records. It had a generous amount of music on the album, close to 45 minutes worth with 16 minutes of Star Trek The Next Generation sound effects. In November of 2012, GNP released an expanded version of the score featuring two full CDs of music expanding the runtime to over two hours worth. The score was recorded by Robert Fernandez at Paramount Pictures Scoring Stage M, and McCarthy conducted the Hollywood Studio Orchestra, Mark McKenzie, William Ross, and Brad Warner provided orchestrations for it. To me, this score is an essential soundtrack for Star Trek fans. Um, because it also bridged the gap. With Dennis McCarthy's music, um, I think there was a really good transition here because he did a lot of the score for Next Generation. And um, and I think it was really well done. Um, the original album had maybe 45 minutes worth of music. I really like the expanded edition because it really opens things up. Um, because I felt like cheated by the original album. It's like there should be more music here. And uh, I mean, McCarthy had written two captains themes, and I thought that was really good. So there's something about this that it explained in the liner notes regarding the two captain themes because it wasn't it said though it was not one for each character rather the two themes served complementary functions for the story as a whole the first being a bold anthem emphasizing force and fists appearing at the beginning of star trek generations the overture and signifies the courage and determination of the starfleet mission 
The second is the heroic melody, more flowing and extended, surging over pulsating bass line, kind of like a heartbeat, with glittering, uplifting accompaniment. And so this theme comes to the fore with like jumping the ravine, which is the first cue that McCarthy composed. McCarthy said, I jumped up there because I saw that and thought, okay, this is a heroic moment that becomes not so heroic. So I wrote that and then backed the theme into some of the earlier cues and the endings. So that's, that's a really fascinating look at those elements. And I don't remember like really hearing those themes like flushed out in the score. Oh, well, yeah, jumping jumping the ravine gets gets that. Uh, like you said, you, you really hear that theme um, in in full as they're um, they're riding on the horses. I mean, it really does get its best rendition uh, during the overture, which is the end credit cue, and we we can talk about that um, later. But what I do appreciate is it though is that the the one theme does kind of. F- follow that um the nobility of a starship captain which is somewhat similar to the um busy man uh, music for star trek five right (laughs) wow yeah Yeah, no kidding so that's where goldsmith brought in kind of the nobility of the of the role of a of a captain But I don't think that, that that's I don't think that particular piece of music in in Star Trek V was necessarily for that. Um, I think it then it reworked its way as a captain motif, the Goldsmith one, uh-huh. into Star Trek uh, First Contact.
And then later in Star Trek Nemesis, uh, Goldsmith comes up with this uh, singular um, theme that also feels very noble and heroic as well for Picard as he's walking through the corridors just before the battle uh, with uh, Shinzon. So when McCarthy is is giving kind of the, you know, Starfleet and Star Trek as a whole, its own kind of heroic uh, theme, that's fine. But then he's able to kind of strip that down and write something else just for the captains themselves and feel yep. it feels a little bit more introspective and gets deeper into the character. And that's what you want from these themes. You want to start mm-hmm. feeling things that might not necessarily be obviously be there but then Mm -hmm. you feel that come out of the character because of the music and so when you hear that wonderful noble heroic motif for the two captains it's i think it's it's one of as i said this score as a whole is underrated but that theme is definitely underrated and does not get talked about enough when talking about great themes in the star trek universe But yeah, I, I can agree with you you more there, Eric, about that about that theme. Um, it's just it it's it's worked in so well throughout the different um through the different stages of the film. And then there is the opening of the film with the with the spinning wine bottle, which we're not sure what it is at first. And according to the script, it opened a completely different way. 
uh, was actually more Kirk-centric. Um, there was the, a whole scene where he's supposed to be um, skydiving, or, or in this place, orbital diving huh. from from a from sort of platform. And um, Nimoy didn't didn't want to do the film because all the lines that he could have been saying could have been said by anybody. So that's why Chekhov and Scotty were the the two that were that were there. But yeah, there's there's a completely different opening, which again I believe is on the Blu-ray, so you can check that out as well. But yeah, the 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 theme itself, um, just just that quiet opening and that little choir that's at the beginning, and just that just that really, and then the the full statement of of uh, Alexander Courage's theme. It works so well. Isn't it? Is it one of the best performances of the Star Trek theme ever? I think. I think that the way he arranged mm -hmm. it. I would. It's. I would powerful. say. Yeah. Exactly. Right? Those horns. Holy yeah. cow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I agree, and I think you know, and you're talking about the choir, um, and yeah. I think Randy just mentioned it's wonderful foreshadowing in the Nexus theme, and and that's the other one. That's the other major theme that I think, out of all of the themes, is my favorite. And I think this gets back to the point that you made, Rob, as well, that now that we're a little older, um, that theme hits a bit harder. And especially within the the sequence that it, where it really comes to life, you rarely get this type of emotion, I think, in one, you don't get this emotion in, in the character of Picard at all in The Next Generation. But this type of emotion, the actual personal story behind Picard mm -hmm. and, yep. and, and mm -hmm. feeling that and that definitely um it, anybody within the audience can can feel that it, it's something that's yeah. universal and um but i think that mccarthy handles that theme with such um i'm gonna steal a word from steven spielberg and he was talking about schindler's list but it's gentle simplicity um mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it's it's beautifully orchestrated and it really does signify that what he's experiencing with the Nexus is a fairy tale. It's not real. Again, McCarthy does not get enough credit for actually thinking about the way he approached this score. I think he does an absolutely incredible job and really, again, digs deep into every single character and every single moment and what they mean to the story as a whole. For me, the watching it again recently, the um, the part that got me more than anything I was when I was when I was watching it is it's the scene with Kirk and Picard. Kirk's in the in the um, I can't remember exactly the the situation, but it just kept echoing in my mind. Captain, look, I need your help. I want you to leave the Nexus with me. We have to go back to our planet, Viridian 3. We have to stop a man called Soren from destroying a star. Millions of lives are at stake. You say history considers me dead. Who am I to argue with history? You're a Starfleet officer. You have a duty. I don't need to be lectured by you. I was out saving the galaxy when your grandfather was in diapers. Besides which, I think the galaxy owes me one. 
I was like you once. So worried about duty and obligation, I couldn't see past my own uniform. And what did it get me? An empty house. I, I, I'll, I'll admit this freely. Uh, my wife had passed away recently, within the last three years. And so, you know, I was working in radio and, you know, what did all this, this, this stuff get me? Well, it got me an empty house. And that, that really, it, it, it hit me harder than I expected it to. I actually had to stop the movie mm. because I was just, I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> this was, it just, it, it just hit me a lot. And then of course the, the, the whole idea of then we see Picard in the Nexus and, and, or before that we see, we're seeing Picard in the Nexus. And as you said, it is this dreamlike state that he's in this euphoric dreamlike state that Soren is trying desperately to get back to because it's like this drug that he just wants. And it's, it's that piece of Guinan that's in there that helps him get find eventually find someone like Kirk who can, can ha has the abstract, has the, the I mean, like logical, the, the, the intellect. Yeah. Much like Picard so that they can kind of talk each other out of this thing which eventually which eventually happens but yeah so so yeah watching this now in my 50s it hit me much harder than i expected it's amazing how how powerful personal losses and in the liner notes it does mention that in order for mccarthy to to find the theme for the nexus he had to experience uh, personal loss and it was uh, his wife's father that died and he had been sick for a very very long time and then you know one night he he passed away and then for whatever reason it was the next morning McCarthy had it he had the theme in his head and he wrote it all in one night and so it, he mentioned that I think it was a, a requiem for um, for his um, uh, father-in-law and I think that's where just the personal connection to these characters and then to the audience, it just hits and hits so perfectly. And it's amazing. I mean, I think we can all say that we would be easily persuaded by the, by the Nexus to stay that if you had a family member that you hadn't seen for a long time, or, or there's an aspect of your life that you thought you would never had experienced before. And all of a sudden it's right there and you can go to any moment at any time with anyone and can you imagine having that power? You would never, never leave. And for Picard to um, experience what he did, and again, the loss of his nephew, I mean, it's, it's tempting. It is so tempting for him to finally have a family, a family that he'd think he would never have. But then understanding that there's, um, there's something that has to be done. Um, instead of being selfish, he has to be a captain and he has to basically save the world once more. Um, and so, yeah, again, I think the combination of that great scene, and I really do think it's a fantastic scene, and just McCarthy, um, uh, you know, sadly having to experience what he did, but the creativity just kind of uh, spilled out of him. And, and what he needed was that kind of little extra jolt from his from his life that he thought he would never have expected to experience but then that mirrors what sort of Picard is going through and again it's such a such a beautiful beautiful theme and I think that's what we get 
with the main title. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think that's really what the main title really represents. It represents like almost like three different elements of the film, not only, but also the um, a sort of dreamlike euphoria, um, especially with the choir. And um, and then, you know, you briefly talked about Alexander Courage's Star Trek theme. And I think that's was brilliant the way that was integrated into the score. I think it's such an interesting main title. I mean, they, they, they definitely changed it up for Star Trek Six, right? It's the first time where you don't really have that um, heroic march opening it up. here you got something way more ominous and i remember seeing it for the first time going wait hold it what is happening and and you're right this nexus music is playing and all of a sudden once the champagne bottle hits the enterprise b and then you see the wide shot of it and i'm like wait hold on a minute is that the new enterprise that our next generation cast is now going to be a part of then all of a sudden no we're back with the old crew and I was I was genuinely confused by it all because it was so unexpected and I appreciate that I mean they went back to the traditional main title in Star Trek uh, First Contact which is which is great um almost I mean it's again a very um a very different theme that Goldsmith wrote but this one was just so ominous and mysterious and again just you're trying to figure out what's happening I think it was a stroke of genius actually and well the, the thing about this is and, and I was just gonna ma- I was gonna mention this earlier that you have to you have to consider that McCarthy was working on both deep space nine and generations and kind of finishing up uh, gener- or next gen at the same time so you hear I, I, for me anyway I hear little bits of of Deep Space Nine some of the music from Deep Space Nine that shows up in Generations it's it's very subtle and it's very it's there but I was like oh okay this is this is a little this is a little motive from from Deep Space Nine especially the the opening which is the uh, attack on or the the battle at Wolf 359 you hear a little, little bits of that in there, and that, which ends up showing up in uh, what he would eventually produce for for the emissary. I was just like, okay, this this is this is working for me, but it only took that that 
space of time to get back into listening to and the of course the expanded version of uh on that gnp crescendo did um with with the score is uh in my opinion fantastic i, I do have one quick story about the, the sound effects i played the what was it the uh enterprise d flyby warp flyby on full blast in uh, when, on my stereo one time and I scared the hell out of my mom and dad. <laughs> they were going, what the hell is going on down there? <laughs> I, I was just, I, 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 I figured, I figured it might rattle the, rattle the floor. No, it did more than rattle the floor. It was rattling <laughs> the windows upstairs. That, and so I was like, okay, sorry, sorry. I won't play my sound effects that loud again, but yeah. That was that was probably the only time that I've I actually really played any of the ma- major sound effects off of there, but yeah, that was just just something I thought I'd, I'd throw in just as a because somebody does play the sound effects. Oh, <laughs> when I first got the album, I played them. I, I went. I, I well, again, I love sound design, so getting to hear those um, those sounds kind of away from the the film was always uh, was always very interesting and. Um, yeah, it's 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 kind of a neat little inclusion, and the fact that they kept them for the expanded edition was uh was actually quite interesting, um, as well. Yeah. Well, why don't we go ahead and play the main title?
Alright, so next we're going to discuss Nexus and Christmas Hug. Um, we referred to the Nexus and where Picard was and this dream sort of thing that he felt was real. And to all intents and purposes, it was real. Uh, but I think the Nexus really reveals how descending that that force, that energy ribbon, as they call it in the film, uh, descending to the planet's surface, consuming Soren and Picard. Um, McCarthy, I think, provides this surreal, shivering synth texture for the Nexus theme. And it, it has this amazing quality of, like, the horns, and it supports uh, the film's startling imagery for what we see. And I found that really unique because when you see them taken up and the planet essentially destroyed, um, and then you see this darkness, but then you see kind of this, like, I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like mirrors and light and several different elements of light. It's like a kaleidoscope. And then, yeah, 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 kind of like a kaleidoscope. And then you realize that Picard had a, had a, uh, like a kerchief around his eyes so he can see. And he was going around in circles on a... They were spinning him as, uh, like, like you do with a, um, uh, I think it's called Blind Man's Bluff. Oh, yeah, yeah. You spin yeah. the purse, you put a, a yeah. blindfold on them, and then you spin them, and then you're they're supposed to find whoever's close by. Right. That was that, At least that's the way I saw yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. But I just, I found it really interesting uh, that they went with that, like, those colors, and it, it represented that dreamlike state. And then you find him in this different reality of being at Christmas time and there's the children there and uh, it's highlighted with, with those, that choir and and it really feels like if you if you were in a theater that had like, you know, a good sound system, you could hear those voices just carry through the whole theater. Right. It, it could have been very easy for, for McCarthy to go very, very Christmassy with it. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't. He goes very ethereal with it and gives it that, that I won't say it's an uneasy feeling because Christmas is, is the, the, the Christmas theme that comes out of this. It's not, it's not a direct Christmas. It doesn't have like jingling bells in it. It doesn't have that, that mm-hmm. Christmas feeling. It but okay, but it does have that feeling to it. It has that Christmas feel to it that you don't necessarily. It's not quite there, but yeah, McCarthy could have very easily gone total Christmas, and and done the whole jingling bells and and that kind of thing. But he doesn't because it's in the Nexus, and that's where I think the brilliance of Christmas of Nexus and Christmas Hug is is that it's very it, it has this beautiful uh woodwind and choir with the 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 
again, this echo of the of the as as uh, what was the the captain's themes that comes mm-hmm. out in this. So for me, it 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 works it works perfectly on this, and probably is one of my favorite cues off of the off of the score. It's just it just it it's beautiful, but at the same time, it's a little off, and it's that's the kind of the reason for the whole the whole nexus thing. For, for at least in, in in the way I see it. What about you? Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite moments of the of the movie, and it's also one of my favorite moments of of the score. Um, besides all the action material, this is again the, this is the um, this is the cue that just gets to the heart of everything in this story, and it, it you know it, it talks about it talks about loss, um, and it talks about the longing that you have for, for, for maybe having your significant other or whomever you've lost in your life come back. And now you have this opportunity to do so. And, and I think that McCarthy, as you said, Rob is, is not scoring the Christmas aspect of it. And you can hear echoes of the captain's theme kind of trying to pull Picard out of the nexus and I think the timing of the sequence is also um, quite important because you could really have stayed longer in the nexus and then might have and, and, and experienced different sequences um, right. it could have overstayed that's as well. exactly it yeah. and it does it yeah. it goes straight to yeah. to the, the heart of the story where Picard no longer has any family in real life and he's never been able to experience settling down and having a family of his own. And now that he does, you can see that just the joy in his face of him finally having that. But that's not his life. And that's not what he signed up for. And I think that's what brings him out of the nexus. And I think that is absolutely fantastic. And that's what makes him so strong. Not only that, but also when he looks at the um, Christmas ornaments, yeah. Yeah. that really seals it It's a bit. That's him. a bit confusing. Um, you know, when you see that twinkle well, in the, I was like, ah, oh, that's a, what, what was the sign? It shows that it's not real. I guess. It proves to Picard, It no, it proves to Picard that it's not real because in one, you see it shining, and then in the other one, it's not. Mm. And he's like, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. And then he realizes, like, Guinan's there, and he's like, what are you doing here? And she's like, I'm an echo right. of the person you know. And and it it I think that helps him break free from the idea of the Nexus. Yeah, I yeah, I guess so. And I but I just think that there's I think there's just a bit more to it. And I even think the echo of Guinan sort of kind of takes away from that a bit. Um, I don't necessarily think it needed to be there. I think he was figuring it out on his own. I think the only reason we get Guinan is to explain to the audience as to what he can do now and how he can go and find Kirk. And and, and that felt a little um, too on the nose and kind of clunky. But the whole entire sequence before that, I felt just was... was it's like, here's your purpose. Yeah, it was so well done. <laughs> it was Speaking as someone who has suffered a, a great loss, um, you want anything to be able to see that person or to be able to have those moments back again and the fact that he you can hear the the longing in that uh, in that christmas hug theme and and that that picard is feeling that you he wants 
desperately to be able to stay in this in the Nexus and experience what what essentially Starfleet's taken from him over the years. Right. And so, yeah, again, watching the film again, it in now and like I said, and now in my fifties, you really get that. I I really got that feeling from it. Whereas before, I was just like, well, okay, yeah, he's sad, but he needs to get out of the nexus so here's here's why it it didn't hit me until just recently how hard it was for him mm-hmm. how hard it was for soren how hard it was for gainen to to not be thinking constantly of the nexus which it's oddly enough it's never really mentioned again after generations right. uh, i don't think it's even referenced in any case yeah. but yeah well and it and, and we can't forget that kirk also has to now separate himself from the Nexus as well. I mean, Picard has to, and he's going through his own, um, or just reliving a mistake and able and and, and wanting to correct that mistake. And I mean, uh, uh, that's just uh, yeah. And knowing that he can't correct that mistake, regardless of how many times he jumps over that ravine. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the, the pull of the Nexus. You can feel it. I, I think again, McCarthy attacked it I think pitch perfectly the twinkling falling snowflake kind of material the but also trying to keep the piece moving forward by bringing in occasional melody uh, it's just a just a absolutely wonderful wonderful sequence so let's go ahead and um, play Nexus Christmas hug
So next, we are going to discuss Outgunned. Um, I think with Outgunned, it's one of the score's really excellent action cues. So, giving some background, maybe some people didn't really follow the storylines of Star Trek The Next Generation very well, so they didn't know about who Lursa and Bator really were. We do, because they are the daughters of the Duras family. And the Duras family were at odds with Worf's father's family. And so they play a keen role in part of one season of Star Trek The Next Generation. They're actually in it a few times and they even try to seduce Picard at one point and they try to seduce Worf at one time in the series. Um, but they are very treacherous and they finally see their treachery pay off uh, with this scene by taking over the visuals of Geordi's visor. Um, and so they're able to get the um, exact shield frequency so they can calibrate their weapons to actually penetrate the Enterprise's uh, shields and actually, you know, blow a hole in it. But I really like how um, it also has a feeling with um, Soren's theme or his motif. Mm. And then that tension rises with the the violins and and I think it's really cool how McCarthy uses the string ostinatos to power this this cue and it builds a crescendo for what happens to the bird of prey and how they're like we're helpless we can't we can't defend against this thing and they're able the Enterprise is able to destroy them in one shot. And it's like, wow. <laughs> I just, I really liked how even that climactic moment in the score is just really expressive and amazing. Yeah. I love it. McCarthy just, just brilliantly. I mean, uh, he, he is a very good action scorer if you let him go. And, and there are many examples in the, uh, in the in the series where where he gets his chance to shine, and I, I also recently played some uh, of his music from from V, and you really mm. hear that that early stages of his action scoring in that as well. But yeah, to hear it come to fruition in Generations in this in in the Q out gun is 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 great to hear. And when it reaches that crescendo and it reaches that point where it's like. Then the, uh, the the Duras sisters' ship is blown up. Well, there it is, and that to that to me is is um, McCarthy's action scoring at its absolute best. Mm-hmm. Eric, yeah, I I agree. Um, I've I've always always loved the action material in this score. I tempt a bunch of my kind of low to no budget amateur movies back when I was, you know, in my 20s with music from uh, this film. It's just some of the most pulse-pounding, 
exciting uh, kinetic uh, action material that you hear in any of the the Star Trek feature films. And yeah, and it's definitely quintessential Dennis McCarthy because you hear similar action cues in in his other Star Trek music for uh, for the TV shows. And um, but I just love that it has that kind of um, I think he calls it like a heartbeat rhythm, which is the um, which is that kind of baseline that um, propels even the overture itself um, when we finally hear it at the end. Um, that is always running underneath it, and um, but I just love the 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 interplay between the the, the themes, and then you know the, the best part is kind of like that um, uh, you know that Star Wars finale uh, Bishop's Countdown um, you know in unison the whole orchestra da 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 da. But that's just after, you know, uh, Riker says fire. And it's like, oh, fire. man, that takes you right back to the best of both worlds. <laughs> Talk it down, Rich. Fools and corruptors. We are cloaking. What? Our shields are down. Fire. just the look the way that they even swing the camera to him and he says fire and they just let it rip and it's like ah man that is an absolutely thrilling sequence and i don't know what they're talking about about you know the, this 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 television ship that doesn't have any details or whatever i thought the enterprise looked absolutely magnificent in this sequence we don't see the whole thing you know, but when we get to do the close-ups and we get to see, um, you know, some of the damage it takes and whatnot, again, the absolute, um, the, the the sheer size of this uh, this ship and this sequence, the, the enormity of it all, it, it the scope of it all, it's. I think the, the the cinematography is absolutely magnificent in this film and in this sequence as well. But Dennis McCarthy just lets it all out, and it's such an absolutely rip-roaring, enjoyable. Um, uh, you know, kind of uh, crowd-pleasing um, action cue that I think makes you think as well that, hey, we've won the day and everything's going to be fine after this. But little do we know that that's not what's going to happen. But let's go ahead and play Outgunned.
So, the next cue, I guess, cues, are a combination of different cues mashed together, but the music is just brilliant. It's, it's expansive, it's action-packed. We get more McCarthy action music with The Gap, Coolant Lake, Appointment with Eternity, and Out of Control, and Blasted, and then The Crash. I mean, that's a lot to cover <laughs> in, what do we have, six minutes? Yeah. For that cue, that one cue. Um, this set is one of the most dramatic sequences in the film. I mean, we have to agree that the ending fight is not all that great. But uh, this scene in the film is just... It, it really opens up that that music for um, the whole battle, really. And with McCarthy at the lead of giving us the music of uh, the strings, as with Picard trying to unsuccessfully appeal to Soren's humanity, um, Riker orders the evacuation of the crew to the saucer section because of the coolant leak and because the warp draw or the warp core is going to explode um but we get these ominous strings and they surge to like just almost like a like a rhythmic like militaristic uh rhythm uh along with those snare drums which say, really uh, his use of snare drums was was very prevalent yeah i yeah. i really liked it i i love that that was just fantastic. And then the interlude of Soren firing at Picard as he struggles to penetrate the compound shield. Uh, it halts that musical drive, yet it resumes in earnest as we see the concussive blast wake up or wake of the warp core breach drive the saucer section into the planet's atmosphere. And I think, like, this whole sequence it includes the whole crash and i mean we haven't really talked about it but data and his emotion ship really are like drawn out with this and we get the first use of a real swear word in a star trek film yeah um <laughs> which i'm fine and, with and it's yeah, and it's fine because it's uttered by Data, yes. and it's it's actually very funny, yes, it and is. it fits the scene immensely. It does, <laughs> yeah. And and it, it reaffirms like the whole enjoyment I get out of Star uh, Star Trek Picard season three episode, like the final episode. Yeah. It's just it's fantastic with Data at the helm. He's like, trust me, I got this. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's just it's just perfect. And that whole sequence, the miniature work on this scene where it's driving into the the planet and the the use of miniatures, the use of the the saucer section in general for the miniature that they use, man that thing was detailed. Like you can really see like windows in it you could see like different things different elements of the ship that you'd never seen before i thought it was really well done i agree yeah i i think um 
this really kind of this cue brings in a a real sense of terror and suspense because we've just come out of like this incredible heroic moment for the Enterprise and its crew as they've defeated the bad guys but then all of a sudden they've got another problem and everybody's panicking and I think it's great that we see another saucer um, you know separation because that's just such, such a cool thing that this ship does that I don't think any other ship does um, and it, again just it's unfortunate that this ship had to 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 die <laughs> um, but um, what I think going back to the music what was this could arguably be the most difficult cue that McCarthy had to had to write because there's the interplay between the two scenes where you're down on the planet and we have Soren and Picard dealing with what they're dealing with but at the same time you have the Enterprise um, crashing down to um, uh, down to the ground and it's going back and forth back and forth back and forth and that is not an easy thing for a composer to handle and um, juggling um, different um, emotions different tempo um, different tones it's it's all incredibly difficult but what I do appreciate um, and I think that this is um, this is something that really good composers do he he, he understands McCarthy understands when he needs to step away and the moment the Enterprise crashes down it's music's out and sound effects are in and it is not only visually one of the most spectacular sequences as I've ever seen due to the incredible practical miniature work and if you ever get a chance to see the making of that sequence it is breathtaking but the sound design and I think that's what's so great about this CD is that you get that entire crash sequence um, yeah, oh, nice. uh, in the sound I effects library, that one yet. and it is unbelievable how um, it's dense but detailed. It's a clean um, piece of audio, and for every big sound, you hear the the creak of the ship as it's sliding along. You're still able to hear the kind of the the, the computer noises all all working. It's an incredible mix of uh, incredible sound design. And so not only musically is it an incredible sequence, it is a master work in the uh, world of uh, sound design and sound editing when it comes down to the crash of the saucer section. As, as Eric said, I mean, the music just drops out at, at that point where it's just just the sound design. And I actually just did an interview where I said, you know, how, do you just are there times when you just drop the music out? 
and the the composer said, "Yeah, sometimes you have to let the you have to let the sound effects, or you have to let the the performance take over." And I think that was that was a brilliant move on McCarthy's part to not overscore that scene, which could have very easily been done. Yeah, and I think Eric would agree with me that John Williams is a prime example for being able to do that effectively, such as with uh, Jurassic Park. Um, another one that I think did that really effectively is Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you were talking about earlier about the shift of musical uh, interlude and having to shift back and forth between the action and yeah. like something subtle. Well, you get that also with Return of the Jedi uh, from Star Wars yeah. that you have those three elements of three scenes that are going on all at the same time and those different elements that are going on through those different sequences. And it's like a really good composer is able to balance those very well. And I think McCarthy did it really smoothly uh, for what he was given. Yeah, I agree completely. So let's go ahead and play this amazing cue.
Alright, well, we've come down to another end of the Essential Soundtracks. Today we've really covered a lot of good music from Generations, and it's been so good. Um, there's two cues I think are better to cover at the end of the program today. Uh, the two cues I speak of is To Live Forever and the Star Trek Generations Overture. Now, what's interesting about this is that the Overture is actually one of the first cues that you hear on the score, which is sad because that's not even correct in the movie because the Overture is actually at the end of the film. I'll, I'll let me let me jump in there just for one second, and I and here and here's the thing: I understand the crowd who love the complete and chronological albums. I totally, totally get it, and I understand that people were just like kind of like out of sorts when you know the Generations Overture starts <laughs> this album, which is because it's really the end credit suite. However, I will say this: mm-hmm. when it comes down to album production. I think it is a great idea to play the end credits at the beginning of an album only because as for a listening experience and if the composer has done it right, you get to hear all of these major themes right off the top. And therefore, as you're listening to the rest of the score, when those themes pop up again, you're like, oh, wait, I've already heard that before in that opening track. So I do like when like even John Williams will do this, he will present his end credit suite um, or create or, or a version of it at the beginning of the album, just so as a listener, you're familiar with the themes of the score as you go through the, through the album. However, in saying that if you are a purist and want to hear it, you know, from start to finish from like a, you know, one M one right to the end, I totally get it. But for me, I, when I got this album, I actually loved hearing that overture right off the top, but that's just me. Oh, yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, I'm just saying it's just, it was, it was not your usual typical uh, piece to hear at the beginning of the score on the album. Right, I think this is the first time on a Star Trek album that they did this, that they presented the end credits at the beginning. But I think it, I think their, I think their, um, the reasoning makes sense. Oh, yeah. I agree because like a lot of times you don't get (laughs) a lot of the audience doesn't get to actually appreciate the ending suite of the film score because they're already out of the movie. (laughs) Yeah. And that's frustrating for the, the orchestra that actually recorded this for them or even played it. And on top of that, the final cue really has a wonderful ending. Like, I mean, a great traditional ending that perfectly ends the album and so i mean if you didn't have a, if you had a cue that just kind of like softly you know faded out that might not be the best way to end an album but you get this awesome rendition of you know uh, courage's fanfare at the for the finale cue and i mean again talk about another an incredible arrangement and performance of that of that um, of that theme I mean, Dennis McCarthy just really, I, I think he got it. He understood. I mean, I think he was even in the liner notes where he was saying, I get to play with this theme and I'm going to use it as much as I can. <laughs> it's going to be, yeah. it's going to be all over the score. And I love every rendition. I, I, like I said, this score might have my very favorite renditions of the, the courage uh, fanfare and out of any score. Mm-hmm. 
I think I like how these, like, to live forever and then the overture, they blend so well together because to live forever we get Data recovering his cat, um, the gentle touching flute conveying Data's joy, um, Picard and Riker pondering the mortal existence. We hear those solemn horns. Yeah, the interplay between both of them is great. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the last shot, you know, seeing the ships, uh, you know, come out of orbit and hit into, you know, uh, light speed. Again, with that wonderful rendition of the, the Courage theme. Just, this movie ends perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What are your final thoughts on the uh, on the film, Rob? Well, you know, a couple. If you if you had if we had done this a couple of years ago, I think I would have had a completely different feeling on the film. Mm-hmm. But just as as with more recent events and and that sort of thing, uh, it hit me in a different way that I was not expecting. Even right down to the music cues as well. And when I listened to the score again, like just a, a few hours ago before we did this again. I'm going, yeah, this is better than I remember it being <laughs> and and all of that. And when 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 I was listening to the uh, not just the original, but the expanded release as well, there are some extra there's some extra stuff in there that is just it it's I, I would put it down as a must listen for Star Trek uh, music fans. Don't just don't discount this score as just being that film that where Kirk dies. no. <laughs> This is this is a good this is a good film with a really good score done by a world class composer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I again, we, I would have very different thoughts if uh, before Picard season three, but the fact that you know they were able to save the Enterprise D in that show then makes me feel so much better about this movie even though I still think it was a big mistake for them to to destroy the Enterprise D and not bring it back but um, even the reasoning why they had to go and find it because of the Prime Directive which I thought was just a I'm like wow that makes so much sense and uh, and then to see the Enterprise again um, in full glory um, in Picard season 3 was just an absolute um uh, magical moment and joy and again so for for me as a next gen fan first over anything else although my god Deep Space Nine is amazing and I wish they made a Deep Space Nine movie at some point but that'll never happen which just sucks um, Star Trek Generation is my Star Trek and the Enterprise D is my ship and um, so again before Picard Season 3 I'm angry um, but now that I've seen Picard season three, I'm not as angry, but my opinion about the score itself has never wavered. I have always, always enjoyed this score. Um, and as I said, I, I, tempted into many of my, um, early movies in my, in my twenties. So exciting. Um, I don't know why it gets crapped on as much as it does. I think it is for any fan that loves, uh, melodic, motivic music, exciting music, um, music that has a, a heart, a music that actually thinks, um, a music that plays a incredibly important role in the narrative. Um, and again, for a film that I only like two-thirds of it, um, I think it's one of the better Star Trek scores. 
and I just think it's just, it's just so much fun and it's it is absolutely pitch perfect and it makes the film better and that's all you can ask from a composer and I'm kind of glad that Dennis McCarthy got this opportunity to really expand his Star Trek palette and not be under that kind of Rick Berman wallpaper um, request that he was making of him on Next Gen and then into Deep Space Nine. He was really able to let loose and show us what he is truly capable of. And he had the time to do it, and he did it so, so very well. Yep. Agree. I would agree. So, yeah. Uh... Thanks so much for joining us today on the Essential Soundtracks. This year, we've got some more episodes coming out. Um, <laughs> I mean, this past year, we only had one of the Essential Soundtracks come out, but I had a lot of life changes that happened in my life. Um, this year will be better. Um, we be covering some really good films this year. Uh, Alien 3. Um... Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, and probably more. And ironically, or, well, I guess not ironically, but enjoyably, both of those scores are done by Elliot Golenthal. So we can look forward to a lot of that music, and I'm really excited about both of those films and talking about them. And also a big thanks to our special guest host, uh, Rob Daniels, thanks for coming on the show. A pleasure. Uh, tell us a little bit about what's coming up on Visions in Sound. Well, I'm not sure when this show is going to appear, but if you are listening during the month of May, you will not be disappointed. Uh, I have coming up a, uh, a show on uh, on sailing movies, so we'll have we'll feature stuff like uh, Vangelis' The Bounty, um, Master and Commander, Far Side of the World, and many, many others, Polaris's Wind and a couple of others. Then also in the month of May, there'll be uh, a, a show called Hell on Two Wheels. And I'm hmm. doing, it's it's on, it's a motorcycle movies. And I'm featuring hmm. scores from like Hell's Bells and a fantastic soundtrack that I found called Werewolves on Wheels. It's, it's going to be fun. And then to end out the, the month of May, I'm going to be doing a special on the music from Aeon Flux, which then leads in oh, yes. into my 23rd anniversary show. So, cool. Congratulations, Rob. 23 years. Well, thank you very that's much. Thank you. Amazing. How yeah. many shows have you done that's, now? That's awesome. It'll be one th- at that point, it'll be like into the 1,180s. Unbelievable. Or set wow. close, close to 1,180s. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. That really that's is That's awesome. Congratulations. That's really awesome. Thank you. Congrats. So with that, we're going to close the show and we're going to play To Live Forever in Star Trek Generations Overture. And until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers you hear throughout the program, and to David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And wherever you're listening to us today, please take a moment right now to leave us a rating and a review of the podcast. You can get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt at our Tee Public store. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cinematic sound radio. And don't forget to check us out on the web at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>